Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And in this podcast, I interview Bashir Haidari. He is a neuropsychologist. He is a thought mogul. He runs the Alpha Trading House, all about investing and an emotional EQ expert. Uh, we go deep into the topics of neuropsychology, um, biology, uh, investment trading, and all of our overall crafting your presence in life. What does it take to be the dungeon master and the player in the game, the different avatars you need to represent in the life, and how you can craft that by writing things down and how you should not be a jack of all um, or because you become a master of none. And so we go into how, it, what is his psychology behind that? And then ultimately, what is his holy grail? You know, what is his driving force? And what allows him to stay on the grind and be able to delay his gratification to make those small wins over time to have a sum that is then greater than the individual short-term wins. So without any further ado, I present my friend, Bashir Haidari. Hey, Bashir. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dylan. It's always revitalizing talking to you every time we've popped a conversation. It's always went somewhere. So Absolutely. Thank you once again. Yeah, I know. Yeah, incredibly excited and grateful to have you on the podcast. And yes, um, when I got this thing started, I had you in mind. Uh, every time we, we jam, I feel like we enter a flow session. Uh, we get into a deep talk and we just kind of hit the slipstream of communications. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm just really excited to do this. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, you know, I'd love to get started first by just kind of hearing a little bit about your background um, and, you know, how you kind of, you know, got your, your legs in the world of neuroscience and, and, and you know, what led you up to today. So um, please, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. You know, it's, um, it's a dense narrative to unpackage and I always try to like figure out a way to find the center of mass of what I did and how I can tell it to people and how I can kind of storyboard it because anything that you do in life needs to belong to a narrative. You can't just jump from chapter six to chapter 15. So I've thought about it before and I'll share a little bit of that with you guys on this forum. But I met my first mentor, Dr. Katsushi Arisaka, about four years ago. Mm -hmm. And for people who are not familiar with Dr. Arisaka, he was one of the vanguards in the discovery of the Higgs boson. So he and his team had worked in Geneva, Switzerland to scaffold CERN, which was a Hadron Collider. So his background was in particle physics, but at some point in his life, he had transitioned to the realm of neurophysics. He wanted to see if he could import what he knew in particle physics to human consciousness and how the brain programs it neurally. So I met him about four years ago as a fledgling neuroscience major, and I had entered his office, sat me down, and very eccentrically, he showed me about 50 different slides. And at first, I was kind of taken aback, right? I promise you every single slide went over my head, but... <laughs> You know what? There was something very, very magnetic about this guy, despite how 
crazy and intimidating he was at first. So I stuck around and questions evolved into more questions and more questions and more questions. And at the last 1% of the journey, I got my answers. And the questions always outnumber the answers. And maybe that's how you know you were on the right track. Because we know when we don't know. Yep. But I stuck with Dr. Arisaka for a long time. And he was a mentor to me. He was a partner to me. He was a best friend to me. And as he evolved, it kind of evolved in the game too. And uh, our focal point was human consciousness. But it wasn't just human consciousness. It was the crafty ways in which we could observe human consciousness. Because as we all know, there's no empirical way to observe consciousness. Mm -hmm. We just have to look for indirect ways by which it could be mediated, right? We don't know what consciousness looks like. We just know the epiphenomena of it when it reaches our skin, when it reaches our lips, when it reaches our body language. So we spent a lot of our time trying to be crafty and sort of tame what consciousness could be in the body. Where is it radiating from? How is it working as an overall choreography? And instead of getting into what we discovered, I want to get into what it did for me. Mm. Right. So about two to three years along this thoroughfare, me and Arisaka, you know, we developed this very, very interesting kinetic where he would come to me for final confirmation of his great enduring abstractions. And I would kind of sit there and I would help walk him through, you know, some of the loose ends. I would try to lend as much as I could to some of the gray areas. But it became like this very interesting kinetic of me getting the loose ends while he kind of created the core of the theorem. Mm. And, you know, we found a great handshake in that, in that regard. So what I became of sorts was a, a reverse engineer, like a storyboarder. I took what he did and I reverse engineered it so I could catch him on the loose ends. I reverse engineered it so I could actually tell it to people. And he was like, he's like, you're my most gifted translator, but not translator from English to Spanish. You're the translator from hieroglyphics that we can't even read to English, you know. So what ended up happening was that not only did I gather a massive edge on the frontiers of neurophysics, a massive edge on the frontiers of what Dr. Arisaka's pioneer work was, I also built and cultured this gift as a reverse engineer. If you give me a grain of sand, I can build a kingdom out of it. And this is where Arisaka always, always, I guess, respected or revered me in terms of talent. He said, you are a gifted reverse engineer. If you want to do something mm. in life, I can give you a grain of sand. You can build the kingdom out of it. Remember that. Remember that. You don't need the entire book. I can give you a chapter. You've written the entire book. And uh, he, just helped, he helped me discover what exactly I wanted to do. He put teeth into it. So taking some of the animation and some of the energy that I developed and cultured with Dr. Arisaka over the last three or four years, I made sort of a spiritual transition to a place where I knew that reverse engineering would be vital to. I knew reverse engineering would be the bread and butter to. And uh, it was the stock market 
Now, as you know, my background with Ari Saka was neurophysics. Mm. I also lent my background in neuroscience and neuropsychology, and they're all related in some way or form. They truly are. But notwithstanding, I met with a friend Mm-hmm. by the name of Greg S. Reed. And if you're not familiar with Greg S. Reed, he is the host and founder of Forbes Secret Knock. He's also a Forbes magazine subsidiary. He's ranked as the top 100 speakers internationally. He's a best-selling author. I mean, his track record is very, very like impressive. And I asked him, I said, can you usher me to the one guy in your space, to the one guy in your network who can really give me a fresh version of what the stock market is. Can you send me to the person who can give me the sand so I can build the kingdom? And uh, he ended up referring me to a few people that I would really be able to dig unprecedentedly deep into the narrative with. So I met with a few friends by virtue of Greg And as a result of that, I have a circle of investment luminaries. One of them goes by the name of Marcelo Vega. Another of them goes by the name of Jeffrey Roscas. Another of them goes by the name of Moody Ibrahim. And I had this really, really nice place where for once... It wasn't neuroscience for once. It wasn't, you know, empiricism in a lab. It wasn't, you know, writing papers. It was actually looking at price charts and storyboarding the price actions logic. It was being in your room alone while you built your Midas touch. It was alienating yourself so you could self-innovate. It wasn't uh, me with someone else thing anymore. It was more so a, wow, you have to be accountable. You have to do this yourself. No one can teach you your method to the madness. It's all you. So if Dr. Arisaka gave me running shoes, I ran the mile when I got to the stock market. And from then on out, I had a really nice network of people who I could go back and forth with, but I knew the real journey, the real evolution took place between the four walls of my room Mm. because no one can inspire that accountability. Only you can. So over the course of about a year and a half, I went from blowing my first account to breaking even to finally taming what I call a mathematical edge. And it's from that mathematical edge that I really gleaned the most important perspective of my life today. That is that I'm not interested in big wins and big losses, Dylan. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in moderate wins and small losses. Big wins and big losses, no matter what they are in relationships, in money, in friends, will always lead you to a break-even lifestyle. You're stuck in purgatory for the most part. But moderate wins and small losses, that will inch you to the mile. And that's what I learned, the art of pacing, the art of being slow but sure. I am okay living a life with moderate excitement and small losses. I'm okay living my life with moderate wins and small losses because I know given enough time, a percent of $1,000 might be 100 but a percent of $100,000 is 1000 and so on. The proportion stays the same. The dice just get bigger. So today, you know, I host a mentorship and it really draws a motif across the last four years from neuropsychology 
with Dr. Arisanka to actual psychology and the self-sufficiency of developing an algorithm in the stock market to now a A to Z type of mentorship where I help people not so much do the technical parts of trading, but do the emotional intelligence and psychological intelligence part of trading. I have a book coming out. I'm not going to give that a plug or anything, mm. but I uh, it's like a Dante's Inferno type of trek through the successful trader's psyche. And I always tell people, this game isn't about building an algorithm. This game isn't so much about, you know, doing the thing on the price charts. It's all about your psychology. It's all about how you experience the reality and how consistent you are when you choose your experiences. I call it mind over matter in the flesh. That's every successful investor and that's every successful publicist wrong not publicist that's every successful scientist i've met there is some degree of mind over matter and you know i'm midway in the journey but i feel as though that mantra right there is everything to me it is mind over matter you know that is what i seek to do in my venture that is what i seek to do in this artwork that is incarnated so beautifully today but I'll throw the ball back to your court, Dylan. That was that was a long talk. No, it was, so, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. No, it set it set the um, the intention and the direction, which is fantastic. And I have a you know lots of questions around this. You know how does how does you know uh, neurobiology and psychology? You know how do they inter interwine to actually create the psyche for the the person? Because I mean, ultimately. You know, mm -hmm. heroes are the ones that can make hard decisions. They can, you know, delay gratitude, uh, uh, gratification, delay gratification, yeah. yes, <laughs> things like that. Uh, there's like the marshmallow study, things like that. Um, if people aren't familiar with the marshmallow study, it's they put little kids in a room, they put a marshmallow there, and they said if you wait and don't eat the marshmallow, you can mm -hmm. you can go off, and, and and when I come back in X amount of time, I'll give you two marshmallows. But the people that can delay the gratification the most it would ultimately be most successful over time so how absolutely does, how does you know how does the neurology affect the psychology um around these you know medium wins and small losses is it something that can be cultivated and curated and you know what are some signs that the psychology is is correctly mm -hmm. in place and how do you reorient the person to actually have the right mind or psyche you know and and how does it tie in with neurobiology First of all, I think you bracketed these questions exceptionally because you're hitting the linchpin of everything I do. You said the word delayed gratification, correct? Mm -hmm. You have no idea how critical that is in the stock market. You have no how. Actually, you do have an idea because you're the one who posited it, right? <laughs> but I'm speaking in, uh, in like I'm speaking idiomatically. Mm -hmm. But delayed gratification is like a cornerstone of successful investing, whether that's sports betting or real estate or the stock market. It is a cornerstone. So. Let me go ahead and return to the first part of your question, and I can move forward chronologically. But neuroscience is really parallel circuitry, you know, enshrined in this impeccable geometry of the human nervous system, right? We have inputs and we have outputs, and we have a brain that mediates the two. Mm -hmm. When I look at neuroscience and I look at psychology, there is always been a glaring gap between the two right psychology is a step towards the realm of consciousness it takes a step towards describing that realm of consciousness but neuroscience is focused on the empirical occurrence of 
neural activity. It can't make the leap by itself. It has to shake hands with the psychology community. It has to step out of its own community to give the types of answers we want to hear. But as far as we're concerned, if I were to talk specifically about where neuroscience meets successful investing, and mm-hmm. is that a fair place to start? Yes. Before I go on, I would tell you that we have a particular spot in the brain known as the amygdala or the amygdala. A lot of people call it amygdala. The right way is to call it amygdala. But it is important for our attachment of affect to experiences, right? If you see a snake pop up next to you, your gut will contract and your brain will accessorize that muscle contraction as fear. And so what ends up happening, according to this theory known as the Mackenzie-Lagrange theory, I hope I'm getting this right, and if not, we can correct it, is that all emotions start as a muscular contraction and they're later accessorized by the amygdala as one of the emotions that we encounter today, whether it's fear, happiness, etc. Now. In the realm of investment, you're going to be going on that emotional roller coaster. It is inevitable. Any man who has first walked into the doors of trading and has graduated from the losses that has been beaten by the trials and tribulations understands the nerve wreck. The nerve wreck that is so profound when you first start investing in day trading. The amygdala is responsible it's responsible for accessorizing all those experiences, you know, with fear, with uncertainty. But the important thing for an investor is understanding how to reverse engineer that fear so mm-hmm. that when he's in a trade, he can cut losses fast and stay stubborn in the winning position. You see, a lot of people get hopeful in the losing position because they're scared. They don't want to accept the loss. They don't want to accept that they're wrong. And when they're in the winning position, they get greedy. They take the wins too prematurely. They take the small wins. So what ends up happening is that they have big losses and small wins. And that is caused by both fear, greed, you know, a lot of the emotional spectrum that we see described by the amygdala. Mm -hmm. But to take it one step farther, we have the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is responsible for impulse control. It's responsible for a higher order faculty of thinking. It's responsible for decisiveness. It's responsible for the delayed gratification that you described, the inhibition. Mm -hmm. The investor is also going through a range of experiences where he has to pause how hungry he is. He has to pause how impulsive he is to yield a system that creates small losses and big wins because you need to be stubborn in the winning position, but you need to cut losses fast. Both of those require some degree of impulse control. Both of those require the baby holding off from the marshmallow for as long as possible, but getting out of the room if it's uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So that degree of control is something traders work on all their lives to culture. Where neuroscience meets the psychology of successful investing is where neuroscience meets a person's ability to adapt 
systematically to the environment around them. And if you're familiar with what that learning process is in neuroscience, maybe you've heard of Hebbian plasticity or synaptogenesis. I'm not. The brain, have you, you, you're not familiar with nope. it? Okay, so synaptogenesis in the brain is basically a way in which we develop new neural synapses when mm -hmm. we learn something. So those new neural synapses can occur in the amygdala, they can occur on the frontal lobe, mm -hmm. And as a person graduates from the losses, they are in a much better position to avoid those losses. The reason being is that bad connections are pruned off and good connections are retained. So if you're in the market and you're investing and you are first very impulsive, you are grabbing your profits prematurely, you're just jumping in there taking what you want, you end up with that macabre cycle of big losses and small wins. Well, at some point, your Hebbian plasticity, right, the synaptogenesis is going to kick in. And it's going to start pruning off the things that were negatively conditioning you and retaining the things that were positively conditioning you. So instead of being impulsive and taking the wins really fast, your brain's going to start slowing that down, mm. right, adding more connections that tell you, hey, pause, stop, withhold. Mm -hmm. And as your losses, you know, become smaller and smaller, your brain's going to begin, begin reinforcing that, hey, stop sign, put the pedal right here. This is good. So it's positively conditioning you. So there's negative reinforcement, and then there's positive reinforcement. And your brain uses that as sort of the language to weave that synaptogenic pattern in your brain. And it occurs in the frontal lobe and, I believe, the amygdala. So neuroscience meets psychology for investing. Your amygdala and your frontal lobe are probably the two most vital regions. And the language by which the investor evolves in the brain is through synaptogenesis. We have to prune the bad connections and we have to retain and reinforce the good connections. What ends up happening is that there are going to be neurological differences in a successful investor's brain versus a unexperienced investor. Mm. So, I talked about this word, delayed gratification, as did you. And as you know, delayed gratification is such a critical sign of emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. right? Emotional intelligence is your ability to be self-aware, your ability to be conscientious, but also your ability to meet others eye to eye, right? There's, it's a package type of deal. But uh, one element of that is your delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you this, you know, the unadulterated human psyche was not built to do that. It was not built to delay gratification. It was not built to avoid things like fear and greed. It was not built to put a cap on them. Mm. That's why I always tell my students, I always tell you know my colleagues, that the stock market wasn't built for human nature. It was built for everything but. Mm. About 97% of investors fail. 97% of them. Only 3% of investors achieve a level of reproducibility that becomes profitability. And these are investors that have control over the guy in the mirror, right? They have mm -hmm. control over that frontal lobe. They mm -hmm. have control over the fear and greed that the amygdala accessorizes on their experiences. They've been in the game longer and there was no greater reinforcement than experience itself. 
So neuroscience meets psychology when the brain adapts through synaptogenesis. And that adaption can only happen through losses and the experience thereof. So when we look at a successful investor's brain and an unsuccessful investor's brain, I'll tell you, there's definitely differences there. There's definitely differences there that lend to emotional intelligence. Are you able to actually hook up some sort of, I don't know, EEG or MRI machine or something like that, that you could actually put the brains of an um, inexperienced investor and a actual highly experienced investor and be able to tell that there's um, f- uh, physical differences in the way that those, um, those neural pathways are being set up? I feel like it would be almost impossible Mm. to like account for the noise, Mm. right? Because there could be so many varying elements Mm. that could, I guess, detract from how clean the experiment is, right? There would be so many different things to control for and so many different confounds. Mm. But assuming that we could somehow tame all those different confounds and just get that pure signal to noise, I truly believe that even though this is unmanned territory and I've never seen a study of this nature, I really haven't, to be honest with you. So you popped a very interesting question. I know for a fact that that much conditioning in the brain has to lead to neurological differences. It just has to. It's impossible. It's impossible to avoid that, that, um, that conclusion and if research plans on empirically doing this one day i uh, i know that maybe you could pop the question because it is an interesting thing I was just curious on that topic, and and what's interesting is that it's it's it sounds like it's also a two way street that the psychology can affect the the neurobiology and 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 back and forth. It's not necessarily your state locked into any one type of fixed mindset. Absolutely. What would you say around? You know, uh, you're talking about emotional intelligence, and the first state of emotional intelligence is being able to first assess your um, emotions and then regulate your emotions before you connect with other people. Absolutely. Do you have any? Um, uh, any things that you've seen, any mechanisms, any tools, any steps, any habits or patterns for people to be able to cultivate either their emotional assessment or their emotional regulation um, as they, as if, if they can recognize that I am someone that eats marshmallow right away, but I, it's something that I wish to cultivate. Is there any systems or habits that you would recommend people do to cultivate those? So I always say that your losses are more nutritious than your wins. There is no greater conditioner to the human psyche known to mankind than a financial blow up, right? Because Mm -hmm. money has become so deeply entrenched in the symbol of ability, the symbol of apt, the symbol of, you know, power. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you this, as an investor who reached an edge a level of reproducibility that you can now call profitable. There was no greater way of learning that emotional intelligence, right? The delayed gratification, the vision, the foresight, the consistency, the posture, the savoir-faire, all of that stuff that works together to really make someone truly aware of themselves and the man in the mirror. There was no greater instruction set for that than the losses themselves. A lot of people like to invest with paper money, right? They go in and they can use fake money and dumb money. And I tell them that is the death of your conditioning. That is the death of your emotional intelligence. If you enter this game, you need to lose and you need to lose fast. 
get all that toxicity out of your system so all that's left is that raw unadulterated accountability i actually talk a little bit about this in my book but the reality is i would tell people it's less about habits and it's more about negative reinforcement lose lose fast mm. you're not going to learn any other way mom can't tell you friends can't say this you need to experience it for yourself well, yeah, you're, you're talking about the difference between um, logical information versus an embodied cognition. You're, you're learning something through the experiential of uh, pain, which, again, the, the more emotional intense the um, situation, the more memorable it is. And, and, and fear and pain are much more powerful indicators. Right. Than right. As, yeah. As you know, like a memory that's cons- you have, remember, um, have you ever heard of flashbulb memories? Flashbulb memories. Uh, no. During September 11th. The September 11th attack in 2001, a lot of people reported what were known as flashbulb memories, where it was extremely vivid and extremely potent based on what they recalled. And it turns out that when the brain consolidates the memory, the amygdala can put a tag on it, an emotional tag, and that can render the memory extremely robust or vivid. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be that a memory associated with fear, pain, loss, discomfort is always going to be more robust than a memory associated with happiness, comfort, and security. Mm-hmm. The brain is making a special note, a special privilege to demarcate that moment because it's more important to mm-hmm. survival than the happy one. That's interesting. It, one of the things that makes me think about is this, is uh, one of my favorite books of all time is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, in there, he talks about how, um, you know, it's, it's an amazing story about um, him has firsthand experience going through the Holocaust. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times people think, you know, we are these automaton creatures that we all we do is move towards pleasure and away from pain. And that is all it is. But a woman that is trying to save her baby who's going to get hit by a car, she will voluntarily go out and receive that massive amount of pain because the meaning attached or labeled to that negative pain is more powerful than the, the positive sensation of, of her own life. Right. Absolutely. And what I'm, Absolutely. What I'm curious about is with this, because people experience this fear and or these figures of pain and they, they, they do have that gut um, monkey like response to run away. How do you use I don't know uh, neuro linguistic programming or how do you use language or self talk to reframe those situations uh, to uh, while you're in the moment to reset that and relabel it uh, voluntarily? So like like a self hypnosis type of thing. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Okay. I know for a fact that when I think about self-hypnosis, when I thought about the self-hypnosis that I did, you know, in the uh, time I spent as an investor and really graduating from those trials and tribulations, I know for a fact that I had to write things down. It wasn't so much what I said to myself. It wasn't so much me, you know, repeating a mantra to myself or or anything of that sort. It was more so me becoming neurotically obsessed with writing everything down and storyboarding my journey. That journey became a diary and eventually that diary became an algorithm. And I talk about it a little bit in my book, right? And the whole idea is that if you do not write down the important things that happen in your life if you don't become an artist of storyboarding your life then all those meaningful moments all those painful moments all those happy moments but more so the painful moments will be lost to the white noise and that conditioning will not be as impressive if you learn the art of writing everything down neurotically 
you will always be one step ahead of your growth. You'll be always be one step ahead of your conditioning. I became an artist of the pocketbook. Mm. I became an artist of writing. I wrote every day. I fine-tuned it. I storyboarded it. I rehearsed it. I wanted to know me better than I knew myself. And I knew I couldn't get it clearly unless it was on paper. Because even with the best psyche in the world, even with the best conditioning, you go hang out with friends, you go hang out with anyone else, it could evaporate. White noise will damage it. So once it's on paper, it can't be touched. So that's what I did. I wrote. I wrote. It was less mantra and repetition of something and more so the habit of writing everything down it was protected because it wasn't in my mind because people can touch what's in your mind believe it or not they can get to your mind very easily it's easier to destroy a healthy psyche than it is to build one so as long as it was written down it was for me and me myself alone got it what i'm curious with that because the creating the habit of actual writing things down is uh, in- incredibly valuable and I completely agree with you. I mean, how, yeah. did, how did you curate that habit? Like what, I mean, what cues or responses or what patterns or what systems did you put in place to actually be consistent and create that consistent momentum with narrating your life in the physical, physical paper? So Dr. Arisaka, mm-hmm. at the beginning of this conversation, I had walked you through the thoroughfare of my life in the last four or five years from a reverse engineer to a psychology driven technical analysis trader to now a mentorship you know mentorship host today and uh, it was dr arisaka who really conditioned me to do the writing part he was neurotic when i say the word neurotic i mean he was neurotic with the way he would write every single thought, every single sliver of intention, every single iota of, of um, inspiration, of connection that he had possibly experienced on paper. And within an hour, he would turn around a very lofty slide of a new model or an edited version of the model, version one, version two, all the way up to version 50. This man was dedicated to the art of renouncing and pronouncing everything that he felt. And I watched it, and I think subconsciously or implicitly, mm. I picked up on that because he wasn't just a mentor. He was my best friend. He was honestly my best friend at that point. And as you know, we, uh, we will closely mirror parts of our best friends because we love them, we, we admire them. And I, I saw that happening to me. The cue, the physical tissue that created the cue system for me was Dr. Arisaka and that was the same neuroticism I imported into what I did as a reverse engineer, the stock market. And it was that neuroticism that yielded a 30-page algorithm today that I have, you know, like protected, right? It's my IP. Mm-hmm. It's my, literally my intellectual property. I have it protected, but it's a labyrinth of every twist, turn, tunnel, and grove in the market. And it starts with me and it ends with me. It's about Bashir versus the market, Bashir, Bashir versus himself. And I just wrote and I wrote and I followed the vision that Arisaka had nourished in me. As a queuing system, you have to know that I was around him all, all the time. But uh, it was... Uh, it was definitely him. It was definitely the, the consistent the consistent image of him and the admiration I had for him thereof that made it so second nature to me by the time I was discharged into the market. 
Gotcha. So, okay, so you had a model. You had someone you could mimic, and you do adapt, absorb, and become part of other people as you spend time with yeah. them. I mean, what is that? I mean, what is that on a, a neurobiology level? I mean, how are we, you know, what I'm really interested in is you, we are both our individual selves, and we're a part of this collective whole. And the yeah. more time we are spend time around people, we, send to, we tend to merge and become like them. Uh, you know, husbands and wives over time adopt the same kind of, you know, facial patterns, movements, and, and things like that. Uh, on, on, I'm just curious. What on is that? that? Um, mirror neurons, yeah. Yeah, is it mirror, mirror neurons? So the, yeah. mirror, the mirror neurons, okay, so that type of thing is, is causing that to adapt. And, I mean, is that, is there a way to, I mean, so is that, part of the structure that you would suggest for, you know, young heroes starting, starting out to, to find those people that they idolize, that they model. And then, and then just, oh, yeah. and then uh, do they have a, do you have a process for, um, possibly ways that people could engross themselves to activate those mirror neurons or be able to take more active control, um, off of firing those, those, those mechanisms? Right. And the whole purpose of having Dr. Isaka around was that kind of unspoken conditioning. And, you know, as you know, your mirror neurons are basically like phantom. They're like phantom operating neurons. If you see someone else smile, the mirror neurons will fire and, and generate the feeling of the smile so you understand it. Hmm. In other words, it generates a mimic cry of the action in order for you to understand what the action means. And it's really interesting. But to your point... I tell you that your network is your net worth. And it's so important for you to stock it with people that matter to you, that you admire, that are a step ahead of you. If you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. Don't ever get comfortable with that, you know? So I tell people from a very young age, stop focusing so much on, you know, catering to a friend circle, catering to your homies, the toxic circles that you grew up with in high school, junior high, and start looking for people that you, you know, really fucking admire and like honor those people. Be selective. Be selective with who you want in your life because believe it or not, as you're growing, those cues become second nature. They become so second nature to you that by the time you're doing the things you really love, you'll be speaking their language. You'll be paying homage to them in ways you never thought. So be selective of who you want in your life. And this is hard for people to discover. But selectivity is the first step in really honoring those mirror neurons, right? Selectivity of your network. And then after that, it's subtraction. Everyone wants to add to their life, but very few are willing to subtract. Once you learn the art of selectivity, learn the art of subtraction. There's a lot of white noise in the space. There's a lot of things that you might emulate for the wrong reasons. So you want to get as much of that toxicity out of your life as possible. You want to get as much of the negative friends, the ones that have weird expectations for you, the ones that make you feel like when you're on a roll, when you're really on your momentum, you, you're like damn, you know, yesterday was a great day. I go to see my friend Daniel and now I'm like, shit, I, I just don't feel right. You want to minimize those those destructive or those dismantling moments and you want to minimize the people who do it. So learn to be selective and then learn to be subtractive. And I think that's the best way to keep a very pure, unadulterated circle, to preserve those mirror neurons, to protect them, to activate them in the best way for you to develop that emotional intelligence and it's always hard trying to storyboard this conversation because mm -hmm. we go from neuroscience to sociology to psychology but there is a method to that madness and i really think it does start with you and it ends with you you know 
Yeah, no, 100%. And it sounds like also that that is uh, synergistic with your ability to uh, narrate your own story on the written paper is being able to say, I, I actively choose these people in my life. Um, I walked away from this experience, man, this person made me feel bad. And now I, I don't know why I want to eat a whole tub of peanut butter or whatever that might be yeah. versus, you know, these other people are the people that hold me to a higher standard, hold me to accountability that, that have traits and values and systems um, that I want to adopt and, 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 and integrate into my own system. So by writing those things down, especially about the after experiences that people leave you with, you can kind of start to visualize and cultivate and think on paper versus it all just kind of being jumbly in your head and then next Yeah, okay. yeah. I agree with you completely. Get rid of the white noise and get as mm -hmm. much of the signal as possible, yeah. as much of the signal. So yeah. one, one of the things I've always, uh, always interested in is I think it's very difficult to be both the dungeon master and the player in life and being able to flip between both of those um, perspective sets. And I think the dungeon master is almost like uh, your default mode network um, inside your brain, the, the storytelling part of your brain. I mean, do you have, um, besides writing, or do you have any other systems of accountability of how you swap between those two perspectives? You know, it's, um, it's really interesting that uh, you mentioned dungeon master and player. So the way I interpret that, right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have someone who understands how to create the chessboard, and then you have someone who also knows how to play on that same chessboard. Mm -hmm. And as you know, one critical part of emotional intelligence is knowing how to meet people eye to eye, knowing how to meet situations eye to eye. Sometimes you have to be this leader, and sometimes you have to be the last person to talk. Sometimes you have to be the aggressor, and sometimes you have to be the peacemaker, right? So it's understanding how to curate and, and sculpt what you do as a person to the environment around you. You can't treat everyone the same way and you can't treat every situation the same way. So I truly believe that if you want to learn how to have this type of dexterity, this like you have left arm and right arm and some people are good at both, if you wanna learn how to have that ambidexterity hmm. with your thought process, it's so important to keep a diverse network because you'll always be forced to never get too comfortable here, never get too comfortable here. So you're like this dynamic like spring and you're capable of shooting off at any direction. You're not locked in one mode of thought. You're not locked in one way of doing things. You are as, I guess the right word is, is uh, elastic as possible. And it really starts with having a circle of people that demand very different things. Mm -hmm. I had Dr. Arisaka in my life and he demanded one thing. And then I had the stock market in my life, it demanded another thing. And then I had a few other stuff in my life. You know, they demanded various things. As you know, um, I, uh, I've, I mean, this might be a random topic, but just to get you into some of the psyche, uh, you know, I, uh, I dance professionally. Mm -hmm. I dance professionally, not because I like dancing, because I love to meditate. And uh, the people in that scene gave me very different demands. They were kinesthetic demands. The people from Arisaka scene gave me uh, psychological demands. The stock market gave me, you know, emotional intelligence demands. But no matter where you walked, I where no matter where I walked, I knew that as long as the demands were diverse, I could do the ambidexterity. I could do the chess master and the player on the board. I could jump between roles. But anyone who stuck to one type of network throughout their life, anyone who was used to one mode of conduct, yeah, it can be hard. It can be hard to erase that, uh, that imprint. 
That is that is super interesting. What that makes me think about is this: is what, what I was saying is that, yeah, it's hard to be the dungeon master and the player in the game. But it sounds like what you're saying is if you if you actually are not only the dungeon master and by writing everything down, but you almost like if you're playing the game of life, you actually if you're playing this. Um, first-person role-playing game, it's not that you're one player in the game. What it is is you get to select from multiple different avatars, right? A, a, right. a you know, a brute that's in the front lines, a mage that sits in the back, a, uh, a rogue that sneaks around. These are the, the you know, different types of archetypes. Um, what do you think are the, and you've named a couple of these different, these different groups that helped you cultivate these, I would say, persona avatars that are you, but it's not that you're putting on a mask, but you literally embody this avatar character of, you know, the Bashir that is the dancer, the Bashir that is the emotional intelligence guy. What would you recommend as, a, if, you, if you could lay out a couple of different avatars or personas that are critical for people to develop this um, neuroplasticity, this emotional range of, of archetypes? Right. I, you know, I, I'm, I always heed the, the maxim of Warren Buffett. He says, take the top 20 things you're good at and shave off 17 of them as if they never existed. The remaining three, focus on them as if they only existed. I'm not preaching to people that you want to be a jack of all trades and master of none. I'm preaching to people that you want to find a way to stock the world you live in with various demands that are cohesive enough to get you what you need to do, but different enough to never make you too comfortable. And I'll repeat that. They're cohesive enough to get you where you need, but they're not similar enough to get you too comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea is that I wanted to be a specialist in a few things that mattered. I wanted to do the less that is more. I wanted to do a lot with a little. So there's pretty much three things that I do, and I will tell you what connects all of them. Neuropsychology is my background with Dr. Isaka. Emotional intelligence, you know, authoring, writing, and pure psychology is my background in the stock market. And then the kinesthetic genius is my background with the dancing. And the emotional intelligence is probably the most common thing I found in all of them. They were different enough to demand different parts of who I was, but they were similar enough to pay, they were similar enough to really honor what emotional intelligence was. Uh, when I did things with Arisaka, I'll tell you this, there was so much scrutiny and being placed under a microscope. If you slipped up, if you said one thing that was off, you will be lambasted for it. It had to be extremely, extremely clear. It had to be founded. And if you slipped up or if you tried to bullshit something, you would be caught and you would be put in your place. Arisaka was firm scrutiny. The emotional intelligence I learned there was the self-awareness. You have two ears and you have one mouth. Highlight that proportion. Listen more than you talk. Don't try to talk more than you listen because chances are you might miss something. In the stock market, the emotional intelligence I learned was that of delayed gratification and vision. As you said with the example with the child and the marshmallow, you want to be as stubborn as you can in the winning position, but as 
as uh, conceding as possible in the losing position. You want to know when to accept that you're wrong and you want to know how to stay locked down on a profit. And it's hard for people to do both, believe it or not. People want to take $2, $3. They're not willing to delay it because of the possibility of getting $5 or $6. But the emotional intelligence of delayed gratification and of the endurance right from the stock market and then the emotional intelligence of self-awareness and self-scrutiny from Dr. Isaka and now I trek finally to the emotional intelligence I learned in dancing that type of emotional intelligence for the story's purposes was one where I understood how to meet people eye to eye. I knew how I looked, I knew the way I danced, but I also knew no matter where I danced, whether it was a battle or a cipher, people were watching. So it wasn't just about being a dancer, it was also about being accessible. I learned the art of accessibility. I learned the art of taking what I have, meeting people at their interface, and making sure that they can shake hands with it virtually. So it went from self-awareness, self-scrutiny, to delayed gratification and endurance, to finally accessibility. And I believe that right there really, really uh, emblazoned what Warren Buffett said. He said, find the three things that you can truly specialize in. And then what I said later on is, you want them to be cohesive enough so that you're doing something, but not so similar that you're getting too comfortable. It was that Goldilocks zone that I really believe gave me this elasticity that you call it, right? The, mm-hmm. Being the uh, chess master and the player, that elasticity. Okay, I think uh, I think I worded that wrong. You called it avatars, right? You called it avatars, but I'll call it the chess master too. Mm-hmm. I, I interpret it in a certain way, and this is like an open conversation. Yeah. But let's say that the different avatars in general, the chess master, the player, and all the different players that it includes, I think that's where it started. It was uh, finding that Goldilocks zone of demand, writing down everything that was important based on those demands, and then executing them. And uh, yes, it starts with the network. It be- it starts with the network, it progresses with the writing, and then it ends with the execution. Sure. Okay, that that makes a ton of sense. And what it sounds like you're saying around the avatars or the different the different personas you embody is that they they shouldn't be so diverse and so many that you become um, a jack of all. But you're looking for kind of a strike team, a special forces within yourself that have a synergistic relationship onto each other. Right. The the sniper and the front man or. Uh, yeah. they, these are, but they all have a synergistic benefit. But each one has different demands on your body and your mind that allows you to grow, and they have a compounding effect. You know the, and it sounds like you each one of those phases kind of brought you through those levels of emotional intelligence. You know, one being the, the you know the self assessment, right, and then the other one being right. the regulation, and then in terms of the uh, emotional connection to other people, uh, yeah. is is what you called, I believe, accessibility. The ability to yes. connect and understand uh, th- through putting yourself in a in a highly uh, both uh, collaborative and combative situation that forces you to perform under pressure and a large right. social group and it does does flow play a lot into that is that a part of um, it does that being a uh, professional dancer does that fill up your flow cup and allow you to be creative at the same time or is that just to have a, a social demand and allow you to, to cultivate that accessibility right 
at the so I'm just going to take a small detour and say you know I, I know how we've kind of done a tap dance through the neurology and the psychology and mm -hmm. one of the great things about psychology and the conversation that we're having is that it goes where neurology never could right we could have only talked so much if we were to stick to synaptogenesis but there's a level of abstraction and a level of 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 discourse that goes beyond it where we actually just have to feel the conversation and, and i think that's what comes into play here you talked about emotional intelligence right emotional intelligence is such a critical element of successful investing, whether that's in relationships, whether that's in money, whether that's in yourself, right? You have to have this attribute. It cannot be cultured in a classroom. It can, because professors, they teach you how to think like them. They don't teach you how to do your own thing. They don't teach you how to build your method to the madness. So emotional intelligence was is something that you have to learn through actual loss, through writing, through execution first and foremost but uh thereafter you know you you asked me um having access to those three different cornerstones right having access to that self-awareness and then the uh delayed gratification and then finally the accessibility and performing under pressure did it all lend to the creative outburst or the creative impetus i had as a uh, an investor today, an investor not only in what I do, but an investor in myself. And I'll tell you, absolutely, you know, that was the whole idea of being ambidextrous. That was the whole idea of being good with my left arm and right arm. They're both attached to my body. They're not so different that they are called, you know, different things, but they're still different enough to be meaningful, right? And I love that. I love that Goldilocks mm. zone concept. If you can find an area of specialty and stock it with things that are somehow related but somehow not, oh my God, I don't think there's a greater rendition of human creativity than placing yourself in those circumstances. That is where all creativity starts from. It starts from options, but it also starts from cohesion. Creativity is the ability to narrate and storyboard, right? So it's connected, but also to have no limit to where that storyboarding can go. So it's free. It's connected, but free. I think the whole purpose of this conversation was to really put teeth into this idea of a Goldilocks zone. Mm. And I found that in my network. I wrote it out on paper and I executed it. My network had three components to it. It was neuropsychology, it was investment, and it was dancing. And they all lended they all gratified this this arc this saga known as emotional intelligence and it, it came down to the pen came down to the pen when i tell you, you know that that right there was the creative genius mm. creative genius was being able to do different things but being able to know at the back of my mind that they were all connected absolutely could you have because i'm one of the things i'm thinking about here is um, you know, have you had a moment where you faced the dragon and uh, one of these experiences where you were overwhelmed with fear or doubt or failure? And because you talked about how you've learned from the pain and you've been able to relabel the pain in different ways, shapes and forms. Do, I mean, do you have any stories you'd be willing to share in any of these three buckets where you felt like you couldn't overachieve it, but then you were able to have it have a major impact on your life and psychology? Oh, of course. I blew my first trading account. Remember how I told you there's yeah. no greater conditioner <laughs> to mankind? There's no greater conditioner to mankind than um, than a financial loss. I, I just I don't know why it's so deeply entrenched in our genetic code that when we lose the the value or the currency system, 
oh my god like i'll tell you how bad it was it was so bad that it would actually affect my digestive tract like i was having acid reflux and like digestive issues because i was so nerve-wrecked you know when it hits that level it's it's serious so i um i blew my first trading account it, it took me about six months to blow it and uh I will tell you, man, I will tell you, it was so blindsided. It was so nerve wracking. I have never had to graduate from something this difficult because no matter what I did, no matter what twist and turn I took, I, uh, I realized, fuck, you know, I'm losing. <laughs> and then I, I, I read something by Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. you know, several months in and Warren Buffett once heavily remarked, and I say this in my book as well, you know, I'm quoting excerpts from my book. I hope that's okay. You know, yeah. The book will be published soon, but I, uh, I'm going to quote it somewhat. Mm -hmm. And basically, Warren Buffett once said that you can't produce a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. In other words, there are certain things you can't put a deadline upon, mm. right? You just cannot put a deadline upon certain things in life. And let me just tell you, man, the stock market, it is the holy grail of those things. Okay, the barrier to entry for me wasn't so much what I was doing wrong. The barrier to entry for me was simply how much experience have I internalized? And that's mm. important. The barrier to entry for me was not what I was doing wrong. Mm. It was simply the experience that I internalized. You see, you couldn't put a deadline on the stock market you can't put a deadline on how you navigate the stock market because there's so much to learn that it is lent to the realm of experience only to tell. It is one of those things you must see for yourself. No amount of genius, no amount of bravado, no amount of emotional intelligence will be enough when you first enter the stock market. It is only through the lens of that experience that you can learn. So what I learned, what I learned when I blew my first account, when I fell upon my first great trial and when I graduated from that was that there is no more important thing in life than pacing. You mm. cannot run the mile in a second. You have to inch your way to the mile. You can't build a kingdom in one day. You have to start with every grain. You have to start with every, you know, block. So it reminded me, you know, somewhere towards the end of the journey that, hey, you know, like, I know I'm losing. I don't know why I'm losing. But I can sense that if I stay consistent with this game, sooner or later, I'm going to hit a point where I break even. And lo and behold, although very treacherously, I hit the break even point. And, uh, I remember reading a quote by Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos asked Warren Buffett, he said, you have the greatest net worth on the planet, one of the greatest net worths on the planet, but your investment model is so simple. How come other people haven't copied you? To which Warren Buffett once responded, he said, because no one wants to get rich slowly. <laughs> And I really, really unpackaged that towards the end of my, I guess you could say, trough, towards mm. the end of my dip in this experience. And I was like, wow, it's truly not something I can put a deadline on. It's truly something I'm going to have to experience and be consistent with. What I learned thereof was that 
if I'm going to do this, I'm going to accept the blows and I'm going to be consistent and I'm not going to give up. So from then on out, yes, the pacing is what bestowed me this beautiful, beautiful, uh, this beautiful mastery of the process and not so much the end point. I was more interested in the blueprints and not what the blueprints created. I was more interested in the steps and not so much where the steps took me. And lo and behold, I hit my break-even point. And when I hit that break-even point, it was another trial altogether and I finally hit my edge. And that's why today I can say, I know how to do it. You know, I know how to do it. I know how to hustle. I know how to do my thing. So it's so it sounds like one of the things that you're saying I'm taking away from this is, you know, when you have these great challenges and you have these great, you know, um, moments of truth that you 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 feel the fear, you feel the intensity, you feel all those um quote unquote negative emotions or whatever it might be, it's not the actual experiences that are preventing you from from getting you to where you want to go. But really to get the most experience points is understanding that these learning moments, it's all about how much you can both gather and integrate those learning moments into your psyche, into your system, internalize them, write them down, process them. Because, you know, life might give you uh, an experience that is you fight this great battle um, and you and if you just run away or you get through it in some way, shape or form and you don't internalize it, you basically leave all those experience points on the table with the if you don't have the ability to take it, learn from it, integrate it, process it and then move forward. And that's the great barrier for progress and transformation. You know what's you know what's great about what you said. I know how sometimes when I start narrating, like you you kind of reel it back into the purposes of this conversation. And as you know, you're a virtual reality. Um, you're a virtual mm-hmm. reality. Uh, can I call you an expert in that? Sure. That be fair to say? Yeah, you're a virtual reality expert, right? And I, I just want to be very mindful of your credentials. But um, the important thing of what you just said, and I, I want to compound on that because I want to keep this really about what the podcast was built for and, and, and what your background is. I have had friends who have shadowed doctors for one hour in their life. And I have also had friends who have shadowed doctors for three years. I have interviewed both these friends for various forums, for various enterprises that they wanted to be a part of. Let me tell you this, that friend of mine who had been a shadower for one hour had gleaned, had plucked the most meaningful, saturated experience from that one hour. And my other friend who had been in the game for three years could barely string a sentence together. It all goes back to what you said. It's not about the experience itself. It's about how you internalize the experience. And I have a quote from my book that I want to read from you because there's like so much to say, but I also want to be mindful that it's still in the book. But uh, let me go ahead and read the quote to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Successful trading, this is my quote, I wrote this. Successful trading is about internalizing the experiences that narrate the do's and don'ts in order to map out a systematic direction based on those do's and don'ts. So no matter what you're doing, no matter what your experience is, it could just be water falling out of an empty bucket until you put a floor on that bucket, until you put a base on the bucket. It's not about what you experience, it's about how fast you internalize those experiences. And as you know, there is no better way to speed up that internalization than writing down your purpose, writing down your story. Storyboarding, you are a self-narrator, honor it. 
Love we, that. Yeah, that's what it is. I love that. Um, one of the last questions here for you. What's your What's your holy grail? You've put a lot of time into uh, crafting who you are, and you've put a lot of time and dedication and effort into kind of honing these different uh, avatars that you represent. Um, why do all this? You know, what's what's the what's the end game for you? You know, I, I dedicated my life to only honing three avatars, only three. I will not do anything more at this point. I will not spread myself thin. And as I told you, they were similar enough to do what they had to do, but they were different enough to not render me comfortable. And, you know, that dynamic was so important for the creativity that uh, I could import into my my venture, my game, my scene. So mm-hmm. the ultimate question that I had to answer when I was storyboarding, when I was self-narrating, you know, when I had that little pocketbook that became a diary and then a diary that became an algorithm, interestingly enough, I had to answer the question why. And I knew in search of that answer, the why had to be stronger than the how. It just had to be. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense for it to be asymmetrical. And it didn't make sense for it to be asymmetrical such that the how was heavier than the why. It only made sense in asymmetry when the why was heavier than now and that was the one part of the diary dylan that was the one part of the diary that i left for last i wrote a sentence out in the beginning of it you know to frame to put to give like a a helmet to the body and i wrote the body i finished the diary i nearly finished the algorithm and this was a while back right probably like five months ago and i tracked it back to the first sentence and it was uh, the why and what I realized was that the first step in answering the why was pacing it mm. was honoring it enough to save it for last it was honoring it enough to give it the time it deserves to incubate that word incubate is so important so when I got back to it and I began answering it and I noticed how I'm trying to explain what kind of psychological cues allowed me to do it and then explain what the concept is, right? Because we've been kind of following that approach with everything, right? So mm-hmm. I uh, I realized, you know, quite faithfully um, that I do what I have to do. I truly do what I have to do because I remember the instance of that mother who sees their son or their daughter trapped under the car and they suddenly pull out the superhuman strength Mm -hmm. to lift the car up. I do what I have to do because my survival instinct doesn't just shoulder me. It shoulders many other people around me. It shoulders people that were left behind. It shoulders people that were given to me because someone dear to me passed away. You know, I... uh, I lost my father about three years ago, and I'm not going to turn this into you know a, a sob story or a negative story, but let me just celebrate what mattered mm-hmm. when I lost my dad. I was left with my mom, and uh, you know my sisters, they went on to kind of do their own life, and that's perfectly fine. That's fine. You know There was a degree of trauma involved in being in the house, but I was left with my mom. He, he gave me my mom, and I, it wasn't about me anymore. Dylan, it wasn't about me when that happened. It was truly about the art of me giving. It was truly about the art of me doing the 5149. It was more good energy for the one around me and less energy for myself. And I, uh, 
I just always recall the example of the mother who can somehow, you know, superhuman like pick the truck off of the child and mm-hmm. toss it aside to rescue them. And, and I, I realized that's what I do. That's what I do. I have a survival instinct that shoulders not me, but the one around me that is pretty much all I have left in a lot of senses. And because my instinct shoulders two people, I have these superhuman powers. It's because I'm willing to give before I get, I have these superhuman powers. You see, I do it. I do what I do. I work to perfect my craft almost neurotically and I will never give up on doing so because I know that as long as I have a survival instinct that shoulders one more person, I will be rewarded for it. And in a lot of senses, it has been my greatest reward, not only in teaching me just how important it is to stop down, look left and right, to stop running, look left and right, smell the air, realize what you have before it's gone, Mm. but to also recognize what those people can do for you. I'd be one-fourth the man I am today if I wasn't doing it for my father's legacy. I'd be one-fourth the man I am today if I wasn't doing it for the person who remained. My survival instinct is now down to two people. It's not down to one. And that has been the greatest, greatest impetus for me, not only as a person who can recognize the value of something before it's too late, but also as a person who knows how to glean the value of something before it's too late. My mom has been the incredible reinforcer of the things I do, but she is also the person who has taught me pacing, to stop what I'm doing, to say fuck the investment, fuck the dancing, fuck the science, and just pause and marinate and enjoy what I have before it's gone. That's so powerful. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, you, can, you know, you can do a, a, you can do a little for yourself, but you can do a lot for the people you care about. And uh, yeah. that gives you the strength to, to, to delay that gratification, knowing that it has more meaning than the, yeah. than the marshmallow up front. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, uh, Bashir, how do people get a hold of you if they want to reach out? How do they learn more about you, get in touch? Um, what's the best way for them to, to find out more about you? Okay. Um, I have an Instagram that I conduct a lot of my business from. It's kind of like a business card for me at this point. And uh, I can give my Instagram if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, go for it. It's uh, at S-H-E-E-R underscore bash. So it's sheer underscore bash. You can find me on Instagram. And uh, I know I said I was a professional dancer. Let me just humble myself and say I'm not professional by any means, but I did it in the industry long enough to, you know, film in some music videos and do stuff. So I don't think I'm a great dancer. If you guys see it on my page, just know I'm trying to be humble here. I don't think I'm professional, but uh, yeah, it's there. You know, it's funny. I met you uh, at this uh, blockchain AI conference and we had a wonderful deep conversation. And one of the reasons why I reached out to you for this and then I you know, went and connected with you on Instagram and I actually saw you dancing. I was like, I was blown away because it was this one persona I'd known you as such an intellectual. And then all of a sudden I saw you with this this movement and embodied it just it was it was this this radical kind of merging of these two worlds. It's like, wow, uh, this is a dynamic soul. So I will I will Thank attest you. you are a good dancer, uh, and I, I, I I've seen 
seen Thank you. and it's 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 awesome so i hope people go and, and be able to check that out as well uh thank you thank so you. much especially for coming on i really appreciate this i really enjoyed the talk and um yeah and uh, i look forward to reading your book when it comes out thank you so much Dylan. All right. bye now Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at Dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventures. Until next time.